It's good to see you this morning. Uh, we are at the end of First John. We have spent 13 weeks on this uh, on this uh, passage of scripture, and uh, we have come to the last verses today. Um, I hope it's been beneficial to you. Um, these last several verses, we're going to talk about First John chapter five, verses 13 to 21, and they're kind of a summary of all we've talked about before. I don't know if you've had like college classes or high school classes. A lot of times there's just like this review section, right? There's this review uh, section of the class where you go over everything kind of that you've talked about before, just to make sure you've got it, just to make sure you understand. If you're a music major, you do a recital or you do an audition, you know, to see if you've got it. If you're a history major, you write, might write a thesis. If you're in nursing, you might do an internship. You know, if you're an education major, you might write a, you might actually teach a class. If you're a pastor, they just want to make sure you can read. <laughs> Basically, we have to prove what we've learned, right? We just have to come back and we have to prove what we've learned. So this section is like that. Uh, John is reviewing all that he said, and he challenges us to see if we get it. And so in these final verses, John is connecting three major themes together that I want to talk about. Uh, and he connects them to practical living as well. So let's read this section together. First John, <clears throat> excuse me, 5, starting at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Yeah, praise God. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So, first main theme I want to talk about today is you have eternal life. You have eternal life. John has spent so much time on this, trying to convince us we have eternal life, because we sometimes don't want to believe it. But it's true. Look at 1 John 5, the very first verse we, we read today, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So simple. Do you believe in Jesus? And that means that he's the Messiah, the chosen one, the son of the living God. You believe in Jesus in that way. If you do, you have eternal life by the grace and mercy of God. See, John, in, his, in this letter, he isn't trying to convince unbelievers to be believers here. John is trying to convince believers that they really have eternal life. And so he begins this letter, even, way back in chapter 1, by claiming Jesus, whom John knew, intimately, is eternal life itself. 
So if we look at 1 John 1, chapter 1, verse 2, it says, The life appeared. This is Jesus. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. I'm not sure if we do this a whole lot, but we have to like consider eternal life. What is that? What's the point of it? Is it just living on and on and on? Is it never-ending existence? Some atheists, some people have said, you know, frankly, from the way that you describe heaven, it sounds kind of boring. You know, they'll say that kind of stuff. So we're describing it wrong, all right? <laughs> if we say that it's boring, we're really not giving it all that it's, it's supposed to get. And, you know, we think maybe it's like a, a, an eternal retirement where you're going to see all your loved ones and maybe play golf every day or whatever, but it's so much more than that. By the way, that would be hell for me. I, I'll tell you. It's so much more than that. Eternal life is about fellowship with God. It's fellowship with God, the God of the universe, the creator of all things. And that doesn't sound boring to me. It's fellowship with that God. He says that right after that verse 2 we read. Let's read verse 3 in chapter 1. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So eternal life is all about having fellowship with God. So throughout this, ser this series, we've been suggesting things you might want to write in your Bible. And right now I want to suggest that you underline you have eternal life in verse 13. You have eternal life. And then write fellowship with God out in the margin. Just connect those concepts. When you come back to this in two months, you won't wonder why you underlined it. It, it really, that, that you have eternal life means fellowship with God. So if we have fellowship with God, we're in union with the eternal God. And that fellowship with God, it leads to a couple of things relating to prayer. First of all, we have confidence in prayer. We're confident when we come to God in prayer. John has told us that our relationship with, with God is not characterized by fear, right? But by confidence to be able to come before him. Our lifespans are less than the tick of a second hand on a clock, and we have no reason to expect to have fellowship with God. But God in his grace and his mercy has created that for us. And so we have confidence before God to approach him. If we look at 1 John 5, verses 14 to 15 there, it says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. He says we can confidently approach God in prayer. Okay, we don't have to be afraid of going to him for help. Now, what we pray for matters, right? We pray according to his will. And we have to be ready for an answer like no, or sometime later maybe, or you know that kind of stuff. But we have confidence to come before him with our anger, with our frustrations, with our joys, everything. We don't have to hide who we are before God. He knows us intimately and still loves us. So we have confidence in prayer. The other thing that this fellowship with God leads us to is intercessory prayer. This is another thing John deals with in these next couple of verses. Praying for others, a specific kind of prayer, praying on behalf of others. Remember, this letter has spent so much time pounding the fact that our love for God, fellowship with God, none of that matters unless we are loving others. 
in obedience to God, we are loving others. So in 1 John 5, 16 and 17, he says this, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, we have to deal with that, okay? The sin that leads to death. What the heck is that, all right? I mean, there are those who say that once saved, not always saved, that if you're truly saved, you can, through your disobedience and your sin, fall out of salvation. That's not biblical. And I reject it outright because you didn't achieve salvation on your own works. How are you supposed to keep it through your own works? Okay? That's not the case. The Bible says God keeps that salvation for you as a treasure in heaven, stored up for you. All right? Our salvation is our own. When we believe, truly believe in Jesus Christ, Satan can't have us anymore. Our souls are not up for bid. Now, we can disobey. We can sin. And we do. That is biblical. But he forgives us. And our salvation is never in jeopardy. So the sin that leads to death here, the only thing biblically it can be, is a lifetime spent in unbelief. That is, never believing. The sin that leads to death is a persistent unbelief in your life. So there is a sin that leads to death, and that is never taking God up on his gracious offer. Never doing it. But for other sin, John isn't talking about that one. He's talking about when we're in trouble, when we're struggling in sin. When a fellow brother or sister is struggling in sin, he's saying, pray for them. Pray for them. Lift them up. I mean, if you knew someone who was struggling in sin, struggling in something, and you knew where there was help for that person, wouldn't you go on behalf of that person and give them help? That's what John's telling us to do right here. Are you praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ? All of us struggle at one time or another. I dare say we all have had times like that, or we will have times like that, or we're in that right now. And we need your prayer. We need your prayers. So often we don't do that. So often we go into something like judgment or condemnation or gossiping. You know, gosh, did you hear what happened to what's-his-name or what's-his-face? Especially these high-profile pastors that have a failure of some kind of way. We, we tisk-tisk and shake our heads. And do we pray for them? Do we pray for them? We love each other, right? This is not cause to condemn or to marvel at their failure or anything like that. It's time to pray for people. It's time to pray. So instead of that, go to God in prayer and pray on behalf of other people. That's intercessory prayer. And I just want to put in a plug really quick here. A great place to have that happen is within a small group. I know there's some of you out there who want no part of a small group. Maybe you don't think you have time, or maybe you think you'll be put on the spot or asked to teach or asked to pray out loud or asked to answer a question, and you won't. You just fit into a small group, you get to know people, and you instantly have a little family who is going to pray for you, think of you, call you when, when things are going right, when things are going wrong, right? I mean, we, it happens. It happens. We care for each other. 
we're still the size in here where I can go around and say, do you guys have any prayer requests? And we could, you know, just say them. We've done this before. And we can say them and we can pray over things in here. We're still at the size we can sort of do that, but we can't all know each other. Not intimately. And as we get bigger, it'll be even harder. So I'm putting in the plug for small groups right now. And there's a sign-up sheet back there. We're going to talk about it more later. But if you're not in a small group, please consider joining a small group. It will change the trajectory of your faith walk. It really, really will. So an action here in verse 16, where it says you should pray. Underline that. And then in the margin, write intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer or praying for others, whichever if you can't spell intercessory prayer. I might have to do that myself. But um, just you underline you should pray, write intercessory prayer out in the margin. So the first thing, you have eternal life. The second thing that we're dealing with now is you are a child of God. You and I, we are children of God. If you look at 1 John 5 and 19, the very beginning of that verse, it says we know that we are children of God. We know. John has brought this up a dozen times in this letter. He's really hitting this. For example, if we look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. John is deliriously happy here. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And so John ends this letter today with these verses reminding us that if we're in Christ, if we believe he's the Son of God, the Messiah, the Chosen One, we are born of God. We are children of God. We're part of a new family now. Our identity is part of that new family. We are relieved of the burden of being identified and defined by what we do in life. It's like, I'm a doctor, or I'm a plumber, or I'm a pastor, or whatever it is. That doesn't define us anymore. I make so much. I make so much money. That doesn't define me anymore. I own this car or that boat or this house. It doesn't define me anymore. We are part of the family in which we are identified as children of God, as everyone equally loved by God, the God of the universe. That's who we are. That's who we are. We don't have to fight for status. We have the love of the creator of the universe. He's our dad. And it's an amazing, amazing thing. We're no longer claimed by the power of evil either. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are kept safe. In fact, the only way to escape the power of evil is to be claimed by God is to be regenerated, a new creation as part of the family of God. When we confess our sins and we put our faith in and trust in God's grace in Jesus, we're essentially resisting the evil one. Essentially, we're fleeing from the devil. This is what baptism symbolizes. This is what baptism is all about. We go into that tub of water like our old creation, right? And then the water symbolizes this washing and rebirth by the Holy Spirit through our faith. We come up out of the water. We're a new person. We have fleed from the evil one. We are now a member of the family of God, not from the baptism, but from our faith in Jesus. And that's what baptism is symbolizing. If we look at 1 John 5, 18, 
says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God, that is Jesus, keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. So when you're born of God, you're no longer under the control of sin. Satan can't harm you using the powers of sin and death because they were defeated on the cross. Satan hurled all the power of sin and death at Jesus, and Jesus overcame them. He died on the cross and rose again. Sin and death are powerless to us. We're no longer enslaved to this evil world. We no longer are. We're children of the Almighty God, and we have no reason to fear we can have victory over the evil one. And we've been given so many weapons to use. I talked once on, on spiritual warfare, and I'll just say it again. Every time you sin, you have lost a battle that you could have won. You've lost a battle that you could have won. Because we have those weapons. We have faith. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have all those things listed in Ephesians 6 as, as the weapons that we fight with. We understand that we don't fight against each other with different viewpoints. We understand that our warfare is against unseen forces that would probably drive us nuts if we could even see that. So we go into this warfare, temptation itself is not sin, but we go into warfare with temptation and we show up in our PJs instead of in the armor of God. You know, we, we just are unprepared. And in that case, we will sin. Now, God is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But we don't have to lose these battles. I mean, we, are, we will. We're frail human beings. We have times of weakness. That's just biblical that we will sin. But every sin that you commit is a battle you could have won. And that's what we're kept from the evil one. We are given these things as children of God. So a couple of things to do in your, in your Bible here. In verse 18, underline the evil one cannot harm them. The evil one cannot harm them. And in verse 19, underline children of God. Underline children of God. And then in the margin or asterisk at the bottom, like a footnote, write something like, sin and death were defeated on the cross. Sin and death were defeated on the cross. That's why the evil one cannot harm us, because we are children of God, and sin and death was defeated on the cross. Okay? So, we have eternal life. We're a child of God. The third theme is, you know the truth. I know the truth. You know the truth. In 1 John 5, 20, John writes, We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. I don't have a lot to say about this verse, but I want you to circle true. And the three times it shows up in that verse, it just nails it home. There's three times in there it says true. Circle true. All three times. Jesus Christ is the truth. He said it himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is the truth, and so if we know him, we know the truth. And a lot of 1 John is devoted 
to assuring believers that they know the truth. Fifteen times he talks about truth. For example, in 1 John 2, 21, he says, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. <laughs> and what happens when we know the truth and we live it out? The answer is in that final sentence of 1 John. 1 John 5, 21, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. That's what happens when we know the truth and we live it out. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. If you're like me, you may come upon this and you're like, is that it? I mean, it's a strange way to end a letter, right? I mean, there's been a few people who said that maybe this letter is incomplete. There's also been a few who said, well, maybe 2 John is the introduction to 1 John and 3 John is the conclusion. But most scholars believe this letter is absolutely complete as it is and that last sentence is huge. It is absolutely huge. Let's just explore it for a minute. What exactly is an idol? Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. What is an idol? Tim Keller, a theologian and a respected teacher, defines an idol as anything more important to you than God. Anything more important to you than God. I'm not telling you to do this, but if I was writing my Bible right now, I would underline an idol, and out somewhere I'd say anything more important to me than God. It's convicting. He goes on to say, you can tell if something is an idol, is if you got rid of it in your life, you would feel that life is a lot less worth living. You would miss it a lot. That's an idol. Jesus is the truth, the true God. Idols are false gods. So you can see that that sentence is there for a reason. It's the heart of knowing Jesus is true, to keep ourselves from idols. This is really hard because <laughs> either consciously or unconsciously, we have idols. Every last one of us has idols in our lives. <clears throat> I'm going to hit a little heart right here. Our kids can be an idol. Our kids can be an idol when it's more important to you to get them to sporting events on Sunday morning than it is to be in worship. Our kids can be an idol. Our reputations can be an idol when it's more important for you to protect your reputation rather than tell somebody about Jesus. Our reputations can be an idol. Our health can be an idol. We can take vitamins and we can study how to be more healthy and we can eat the right foods and we can enter into incredible athletic events and hone our bodies and we prioritize that so much to the point where our Bibles gather dust. If we have free a moment, we're taking care of our health and in that moment our health can be an idol. Our jobs can be an idol when we work and work and work at our jobs for advancement, for this definition of success that we are chasing. Our jobs can be an idol when we shortchange God to do more work. When we shortchange our families to do more work, our jobs are an idol. Our denomination can be an idol when we cling to our predefined comfort zone of what, of what we want our church to be instead of looking at the word of God and saying, what does it really say and how can I honor God with the way that I live and the things that I believe? Our denominations, in that case, can be an idol when we put those above God. Our doctrines can be an idol when we lose friends over our arguments, 
when we lose friends over our discussions of biblical doctrine, when we let that divide us, when we go to the Bible to make it say what we want instead of going to the Bible to let it tell us what to believe, then our doctrines can be an idol. Our politics can be an idol. Our politics can be an idol when we let those things divide us. When we study more about the possible things that are going on in government and this world than we do the word of God, then politics has become an idol. Success can become an idol. When we listen to the world's definition of success and we pour all of our energy and heart and time into, into seeking that success, instead of letting God telling us what success is and spending time with him, when that chase takes us away from God, success has become an idol. As pastors, as, uh, as administrators of churches, as if we let our head counts become an idol, when we say, well, I don't know if we're doing the, the right thing or not, or just preaching the truth, but we're growing, so we must be doing something right. In that case, we have sacrificed the truth for a lie, and our head counts have become an idol. Our control can become an idol. But we don't want to let God through us. We want to do it ourselves. We have a better idea. We know how to fix this. We don't want to relinquish control to God, and so we put God to the side, and in that case, control becomes an idol. When choices become an idol, when we want to choose what we want to do, when we make choices that are not godly and we don't care, when we do those kinds of things and we set God aside, we have made choices an idol. Our freedoms, our freedoms can be idols. When we pursue those, when we don't want anything, anybody, even the God of the universe, telling us what we need to do. Our freedoms can be idols. I want you to know this. Wherever there is sin in your life, there's an idol behind it. Wherever there's sin in your life, there's an idol behind it. For example, if you struggle with anger and pride and arrogance, if these are things you struggle with, then maybe you have power as an idol behind it. If you struggle with lust or manipulation or addiction, then maybe you have sex as an idol. If you struggle with greed and selfishness and possessiveness, then maybe money is an idol. If you become obsessed with being right and you fail to love other people in certain ways, then maybe doctrine, politics is an idol. So our first step here, folks, is to discern the idols in our lives. We have to look and see what the idols are in our lives. We have to be honest with ourselves because God knows. We're not hiding anything from him. What are the things that you care about more than God? What are the things I care about more than God? Every last one of us has one because you have to be careful here. If you claim you have no idols, you claim you have no sin. And that is absolutely unbiblical. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we all have idols. So what are yours? 1 John 1 just says the same thing. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We have idols. Go to God. Confess your idols. 
help him to see how you have made something an idol. Something that may be totally unconscious to you. But whatever is more important to you than to God, what are those things? John ends this letter with a huge sentence. He implores us who know the truth to constantly be on guard against idols and false gods. We know the truth. Folks, you and I, we know the truth. Therefore, we have to consistently and constantly work to eliminate the idols in our lives, which are false gods, that take us away from the true God. So, we've covered a lot of ground <laughs> in the last 13 weeks. We've covered a lot. We've reviewed the main themes of this. You have eternal life. You're a child of God. You know the truth. So which ones of these speak to you the loudest? Which ones do you need to pray about? Which ones do you need to go to God about? Which will be subjects of prayer for you? My hope is that you've come to a fuller understanding of 1 John. I hope that you've come to a fuller understanding of that letter. I hope you've seen how amazing the Bible is. What truths are there? I hope you've seen all the possible ways. What are one of the possible ways to study the Bible? We've been kind of trying to model that through this. <clears throat> if you find it hard to get started studying the Bible, this is one way to do it, taking it verse by verse, underlining things, looking them up, finding out what they mean. <laughs> I hope you understand that the more you dive into Scripture, the more God changes your heart. The more He changes your heart, the more He changes your life. And I hope you understand that you can have assurance that you belong to God. So many of us struggle with that. I struggle with that. Because I somehow feel like if I'm not perfect, I must not belong to Him. That's not true. It's not biblical. I hope you've been made aware of our marching orders from God. That when we say we love him, we are saying we're going to obey him. And when we obey him, we love others. It's the message of 1 John. And I hope that you become aware or more aware of the threat of idols in your lives. It's this last sentence that just kind of sticks there and doesn't seem to summarize the letter and doesn't seem to belong at the end of a correspondence. It's so hard. It's so hard. 